Testing, testing. Check one, two, check one, two, what it do, what it do. Hello and welcome to Crypto Nomads, the podcast where we discuss the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain tech and its implications for the world. I'm Eli. And I'm Max. And we're coming to you, uh, not live, but recorded from sunny Vancouver, British Columbia. And where are you, Max? Mexico City, Mexico. Excellent. Keeping to our tradition of always recording from different cities (laughs) so far. Yep. Uh, how are you doing, Max? I'm doing pretty well, man. I'm really excited for this podcast. Uh, I liked what we did last, um, and I'm excited to talk about uh, anonymity and, and privacy. I think it's a really important topic. Excellent. What's going on with you? Uh, not much. Just uh, enjoying uh, exploring Vancouver and seeing what, what it's like to live in a country where everyone has healthcare. Um, yeah. So it's it's a beautiful day here, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm also thrilled to dive into our topic for today. Uh, yeah, last week we covered uh, the energy consumption, sort of the energy footprint of Bitcoin. This week, we have a totally different topic to, to dive into, and it's really kind of an intro to privacy. Yeah. And what, what we're thinking for today is in future episodes, we may talk a little bit more about privacy, um, sort of your digital health, your digital hygiene, all the different applications you're using. But today, I think we're going to talk a bit more about privacy in the crypto world. So which privacy, uh, which privacy enabled cryptocurrencies are actually effective, which ones are not, um, and sort of what the implications of that are for you, for society, um, and, and you know, what's going to happen with the future. Great. And I think before we dive in, I just wanted to add a little bit about kind of our thoughts and and dreams for the podcast. So I think the first thing to note is, you know, Max and I are both energy practitioners who have recently been bit by the crypto bug. And so we're also new to this space. And I think one of the main motivations for doing this podcast is to effectively digest what we're learning and then transmit that information. So some, some people say the best way, I think you've said this to me a bunch, Max, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So we're going to be kind of letting you listen in and hopefully contribute and interact with our journey as we learn about these topics. Totally. Um, so we're hoping that you as the listener, you know, have some familiarity with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies, but largely speaking, we're going to try to go a little bit deeper into topics than you might get from a typical explainer. And we're also going to try to keep it really focused on real world applications. So what are these, what do all these esoteric developments actually mean in the physical world? Totally. And to that point, I think it's important to remember, you know, as Eli is saying, we've spent a lot of time reading about this, but are by no means, you know, 10 year veterans or experts. Um, so to that point, we very much welcome people to give us feedback. Um, we're exploring these ideas live with you. So if you have your own ideas or you have your own you know, objections to some of the arguments we're making, um, we would love it actually if you would share it with us. For now, we have an email account, cryptonomads at protonmail.com. Um, and we would love to hear any of your feedback. Um, and potentially, who knows, maybe maybe one day you can end up joining us on the show. Um, the point is for us to, to learn together in, um, you know, in a, a live environment. So that's, that's what we're hoping for. Great. Thanks, Max. So let's launch right into it. We're going to be talking about the privacy implications of cryptocurrencies, how you can maintain your privacy uh, and take advantage of the benefits that privacy provides. Um, so why don't we uh, start right there? Cool. Well, I think the, the most important question to begin with is um, why is privacy important? And I think this is a question that we have a lot of emotional responses to. But when you sit down and start trying to build out or flesh out arguments for this um, it's actually not quite as intuitive as, as you would think. And I think, um, you know, I've listened to a lot of people make these arguments and it, it definitely comes down to, you know, a, a lot of arguments I, I wasn't thinking of initially. So I'm curious your thoughts, Eli. Why do you think privacy is important? Hmm. Yeah, it's a tricky question. And I think my own journey in terms of answering that question has is pretty recent, actually. I think for a long time, I kind of bought into what I now consider a myth about privacy, which is that it's largely about concealing things that are 
not necessarily nefarious, but things that you don't want people to, to discover. And I, that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. But I think what I've learned over the past six months is that privacy is really important for everyone. And for me personally, I would say it's most important because, you know, I feel like I have a right to kind of own the information that I generate and that I access. And if someone's going to be benefiting from information about me, whether it's my spending habits or what I say in my emails, what I say in my texts, you know, I want to know about that. I, first of all, I don't want them to do it. And second of all, I want to have sort of sovereignty. I want to have control over that information. And I think the reason why I want that is because I don't want to be taken advantage of, right? Uh, I don't want marketers to know things about me and, and try to manipulate me based on my preferences or my uh, habits. I don't want a government that I don't fully trust to have access to personal information that they could potentially use to influence me. And yeah, and sometimes I just want to talk about stuff that is just for me and the person I'm speaking with. Totally. Uh, what about you, Max? What? Why would you say privacy is important to you personally? Also, I would say this is a more recent journey, something I honestly didn't think a ton about, you know, until maybe the last year or so. And I would say the the first point is that I think privacy is necessary for evolution. So this is, again, this a bit more of a esoteric or philosophical argument, but I would argue that um, humanity or society as a whole is its own super organism. And the only way for that super organism to evolve is for people to have the freedom of space and the freedom of mind to be able to experiment. And if you don't have the ability to experiment, and that could be experimenting with the kinds of conversations you have, that could be experimenting with the places you go, the people with whom you associate, the things that you purchase, or you know the actions you take in a marketplace, then it's impossible to basically run experiments with your own conception of a self. Um, and one sort of maybe, I guess, more concrete way of thinking about this is if you live in a society where there's a lot of expectations about how you ought to live, so you know, everyone has the same sort of religious orthodoxy and you believe you know, one, one family structure is the right family structure for you, or you live in a state where you know, the government has wildly different beliefs about <laughs> what kinds of you know, books you can read, for example, um, then that leads to a stifling of experimentation. And I think that in order for the universe or you know, even humanity as its own sort of smaller piece of that to continue evolving, you have to have experimentation. I think that's the sort of the most critical element of evolution. Um, so again, that's a little bit of a, a higher level thought, but if I were uh, distilling it and you know, trying to put this in for you know, your own sort of daily life, I would say, think about this. In the future, there's no way for you to predict what sort of corporations or government regimes or organizing bodies are going to have control. And I would say that imagine you gave control to your worst enemy or someone whom you trust the least and gave them the ability to decide what kinds of things you should be able to think or with whom you ought to associate. If that makes you nervous at all, um, then I think that's a pretty sort of tangible or critical argument uh, for, for maintaining privacy. Wow, that's pretty powerful, putting it to that extreme. It's pretty Orwellian to think about. But I mean, that's actually a really real, unfortunately, a very viable hypothetical because we all are leaving an incredibly vast uh, auditable data trail of all, of all of our activities. And that's just a reality. And I think one of my favorite questions to ask my close friends is, you know, what issue do you think you'll be on the wrong side of history about? Which is to say, not that you're wrong about, but that as culture and society changes, the norms change. And so your older perspectives from when you were a teenager, when you were a young adult, become sort of outdated. And I think uh, this isn't so much somewhere where we'll be on the wrong side of history, but I do think it's somewhere where in 20, 10, 20, 30 years, our kids will look back at the first you know, 18 years of the new millennium and say, wow, people were not 
exercising their legal right, if such a thing <laughs> technically exists, yes. to privacy. And they've really opened themselves up. So much of this data is going to be there forever. And somebody will ultimately be able to dig it up. And, and they will have increasingly sophisticated means of filtering through the noise to find juicy tidbits about what Max bought for breakfast in Mexico City. Yeah, or, or you know, maybe you went to a certain political rally or protest that they're not going to agree with 10 years from now. Um, perhaps a, a more yeah. nefarious example. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think both are something you want to protect. Great. So maybe let's shift and, and talk about uh, why privacy is important in the context of financial transactions, uh, since that's going to be the, the building block for discussing fully anonymous cryptocurrencies. So I think one of the things that people get hung up on with this privacy talk is, you know, why me? Why should I care about making anything private? My emails? Okay, maybe that's easier to understand why you should just keep your emails <laughs> private. But financial transactions... Part of that is because the line is kind of blurred. People used to transact almost exclusively in cash, which is more or less an anonymous activity. You can't really trace which $20 bill came from where, right? So our parents, for example, or, or even when we were younger, that's how everyone transacted. And kind of seamlessly and slowly, we moved into this world of quasi-digital cash. Now, you know, most of the money that we have is stored in bank accounts, where it's really just a bunch of bits in a computer that says, Max has this much money, Eli has this much money, etc. Um, and then we've got credit cards and these other devices that, you know, Venmo, we've got Apple Pay. I'm visiting Canada right now and everybody has cards where they just tap it. As soon as you kind of go into that digital world, now there's a risk that all of that data could be shared uh, or, or could be deduced. And, and in fact, that's what credit card companies do. They sell anonymized data of spending patterns among their users. One question that kind of, when you put it to yourself, it's a hypothetical, uh, really kind of got me on board with the idea of anonymizing my spending habits is, you know, think about all the stuff that you used to do with cash. Think about paying your rent, going to the grocery store, paying your friend for a movie. I mean, these aren't super sensitive actions necessarily, but if, if you just ask yourself the question, do I want everyone in the world or do I want specifically someone who actively is working against my interests to have access to all of that information? The amounts you've paid, who you paid, what you bought. And I think everybody would say absolutely not, right? It's hard to imagine exactly how that information could be used against you. But one thing to remember is that, you know, times will change and, and more and more data will become available and will be mineable. Well, and I, th I think another good example is that I was actually going to touch on here is like a business. So let's say, for example, you and I are business partners or like we have two different businesses, but we have a business relationship. And I don't want, you know, you're my, let's say it's like supplier for something. I don't want someone else to know like what I'm buying my supplies for. Like that could be like a, a strategic, you know, competitive advantage. Or even let's say you're negotiating rent with your landlord. You don't want them to know what you're being paid every month. I mean, that's, that's none of their business really. Right. Uh, or, or at least that's, that's sort of my, um, gut reaction or, or emotional response. Uh, I think those are pretty easy to understand examples of why you wouldn't want someone you're you know, negotiating with to have knowledge of, of what you you know own or your income or et cetera. But I think to your point, Eli, it's really important, especially for our listeners, many of whom may have the privilege of living in you know a relatively free or open society, including us, um, that that's not the case for a lot of people in the world today. And just because it's not, it's the case for us today doesn't mean it's going to be the case for us tomorrow. And I think you know that's really what a lot of at least in America, our founding fathers were. Um, you know, very, um, very sort of explicit about in terms of uh, protecting liberty. And I think, I think that's a pretty, pretty important point to never forget as we evolve as a nation, society, etc. One thing that kind of strikes me is this concept of uh, money as free speech, right? And in kind of what I consider a very negative uh, light, the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, a Supreme Court decision in the 2000s, which basically codified legally and said, you know, corporations are people in the sense that 
their spending of money is free speech and that's an exercise of free speech and the government can't limit that. I personally disagree with that decision as far as corporations are concerned, but as far as our individual rights are concerned and are enshrined in the Bill of Rights uh, in the U.S., we're speaking very uh, U.S.-centric at the moment, but this that certainly applies to a lot of other societies as well. That's a, a fundamental right to speak freely and to be able to feel comfortable about supporting a specific political candidate or a specific uh, charity. Or if you're a journalist operating in another country, you know, you need to be able to operate somewhat secretly or at least anonymously in terms of the materials you're buying, the people you're talking to. Often how you spend money can be mapped onto how you do other things. It's not just the transaction. So for all of those reasons, I think it's really important to remember like how one spends their money is in some sense an exercise of free speech. And we should probably get one of our more legally minded friends on here to kind of talk about the the real constitutional implications of that. I do think that, and I think that protecting that requires anonymity because we can't trust that governments or corporate entities will always have our best interests in mind. Yep, totally agree. I, I really do believe what I was trying to say about this sort of evolution point. Like, imagine you want to try any new conception of yourself. Yeah. But like, let's say, imagine you, I don't know, grew up in the South, right? And you are gay, but the, you know, the church is really big there and like, you want to have the ability to go, I don't know, on, on a date with your boyfriend or to pay for, you know, a prostitute or whatever the hell that someone thinks is morally wrong. And the reality is it's none of their business. And if you want to experiment right. with a different conception of yourself, um, but society has the ability to restrict that based on, you know, moral grounds, which morals change dramatically over time, um, I think that's a really important sort of argument for keeping the freedom to experiment. So you can really develop who you are and you should not have some set of arbitrary morals restricting you from doing so. Now, obviously, the question then becomes where do we draw the bright line? Like if you're causing harm to another person, then that's where you know society probably wants to get involved and put some sort of you know skin in the game mechanism to, to keep you from causing harm. But if you're if you're enacting in any kind of you know behavior which someone else deems morally spurious but is not causing anyone else harm, then they have no right to restrict you. Um, that, that's you know my I guess fundamental belief. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's a real issue, particularly you mentioned, you know, people that are gay or, or have some uh, identity that's at odds with the place where they live and the cultural mores. And that can be a case with, you know, medical confidentiality as well. If someone can see that you're spending money for a specific treatment or a specific surgery, they can kind of determine where you went and how you spent your time. Those patterns can be used potentially to discriminate against you. But it could even just be monetarily discriminated against you, right? An insurance company totally. could say, oh, wow, this person's gay. They're at a higher risk for HIV or what have you, right? So th they could kind of make statistical inferences that they shouldn't be allowed to make about you using information that they shouldn't have. So for all those reasons, I think anonymity of payments is akin to protecting your fundamental rights to free speech and to privacy. Totally. Could agree more. I think maybe it give, uh, it's helpful to have a bit of a history here. Um, if you're designing a type of money and you want that money to be, um, you want that money to give you as much individual autonomy as possible to again, restrict or prevent the kinds of censorship or styming of free expression we were talking about. I think the ideal money would have sort of three characteristics. Um, it would be digital, which means it can be sent anywhere. It can be sent in any quantity. It can be sent very rapidly across, you know, more or less time and space. You want it to be decentralized, which means there's no single or, you know, not a few points of failure where a powerful adversary could use, easily take control of the network. And you want it to be fungible, which means that every unit of the currency or of the money is basically the exact same. Um, there's no way to tell the history of where, um, you know, one piece of that currency came from. 
And up until recently, you know, it's been easy to get two out of three of those um, sort of conditions met. Um, but up until recently, it was impossible, or at least the world had not seen uh, an example that met all three. So to give an example, um, let's start, I guess, with gold, right? Gold is uh, <laughs> as old as, as humanity or much older. And people have been using it as a, yeah, as a store of value. as old as our solar system. Uh, yeah, exactly, old as the solar system. People have been using it as a store of value and a means of exchange for a very long time. So gold is decentralized, right? There's no um, central authority that creates gold other than, you know, the, the universe. And as Eli is a geologist, you know, you know more about that. Right, yeah, the, the fusion reactions that are happening in the core of, of stars. But yeah, I mean, what's interesting about gold is it's kind of the only decentralized currency that's followed. Because, you know, the U.S. dollar wasn't always and, and may soon not be the sort of universally recognized medium of exchange that's used to purchase oil or, you know, used in so many financial transactions, international financial transactions. You know, there was a huge time when it was the Portuguese currency, when they had a lot of imperial power, uh, the British pound. It's always changing, but through pretty much all of those eras, going back into even the pre-Neolithic, tens of thousands of years ago, humans have kind of all at least recognized the value of gold to some degree. And so they've been able to kind of coalesce around a common value, exactly, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. So, so again, the, the things about gold, you know, it meets the decentralized property and it's anonymous or fungible. Um, so that's great, but it's not digital. So a challenge with gold and a reason that, you know, it's been hard to sort of peg any currency to gold um, over, you know, uh, the entirety of history is that it's very difficult to transport. It's a large, you know, uh, transporting large amounts of gold is physically difficult, expensive, et cetera. It's something you can't spread to 7 billion people um, easily to, to transact with. Then came 10, 20, I guess 20 years ago now, for, forget, we're already in the almost 2020s, 20, 30 years ago, DigiCash and similar digital caches. Um, these were digital, so obviously you could send, um, send it to anyone in the world. They were, uh, in theory, fungible. So you know they were using encryption techniques already back in those days that predicted that protected um, you from you know adversaries seeing how much you were sending, but they were not uh, they were not decentralized. So they were run by centralized servers. So Max, was Digicash something that kind of evolved beyond just a white paper concept? And I think we should mention to the listeners that we can try to assemble a list of the different sort of proprietary things we mentioned, like you know Digicash. Maybe we can link to that white paper. Yeah, totally. But, my question is, were people actually using Digicash to, to buy and sell yeah, things? Yeah, so to be clear, I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, but from my sort of cursory reading about this, um, Digicash was created by David Chalm, who's like a pretty famous um, cryptographer in the space, one of the sort of forefathers of Satoshi and Bitcoin. And my, um, my uh, understanding is that people were using it. He was actually in talks with several large banks. And I think even Microsoft made back in the 90s, like some $130 million offer to uh, integrate his technology and all of their operating systems. But my understanding is that they were all running on centralized servers. Um, they were not unable or unwilling to strike one of those deals with a larger company and eventually ran out of money and thus the system shut down. But I do believe people were using it. Got it. And then finally, that leads us to, to Bitcoin, which obviously came out you know, um, almost a decade ago now. And Bitcoin was revolutionary because obviously it's digital, but it's decentralized. And it's decentralized. You know, We should probably do a whole other show on this, but using a pr proof of work mechanism that does not require you to trust in anyone else in the network, only to trust in mathematics. And that's huge. But the problem with Bitcoin is that it's not fungible. So what that means is that Bitcoin is pseudonymous, not anonymous. So Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin network, every single transaction becomes what's either called, um, well, it becomes what's called the UTXO, which is uh, an unspent transaction, transaction output. And you can trace the history of each of these UTXOs all the way until the very, um, the moment that that Bitcoin was created. Um, and so what that means is that if you can find a way 
to uh, unearth which pseudonymous addresses, you know, either a sender or a recipient in a transaction, are linked with a real-world identity, right. then you can easily figure out um, who's sending Bitcoin to whom, and it's completely public. So just to kind of unpack that, Max, just so I can get a handle on it. When you're sending Bitcoin, you're really sending always to a public address, someone's an address derived from someone's public key. That's right. Typically, if I'm just looking at the blockchain, I'm never going to know who is who, right? I'm going to see I'm going to see Bitcoin moving from from public address to public address. And actually, that, that's an important point you raised about the UTXOs because I think people kind of want to conflate Bitcoin with coins, as if to say like I own five bitcoins. I mean, that would be great if I own five bitcoins, right? But <laughs> I, would, I would not be saying no to that. But I, I don't actually own coins. There isn't like a, an account with coins sitting in them. All that I really have is a series of pointers, right? It's like transactions that point to each other, and it's kind of a chain of transactions. So I just have ownership to a set of unspent transactions only by means of having the private key to unlock that. Nobody should know that it's me. But I guess what you're saying is, you know, if, if uh, every time you and I get a burrito, someone sees a, a Bitcoin payment going from one public address to another, they might be able to kind of untangle that pattern and say, you know what? This looks like about the price of a burrito, and it's happening at uh, this location, et cetera. And, and maybe they could, maybe they could deduce who's who. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say obviously that's not something that necessarily you or I could do. Um, but if you're thinking about powerful adversaries, corporations, governments, like whoever has a lot of resources, um, that's like being done today. In fact, there is an interesting article we can link to talking about how the IRS is already working with. Um, an enterprise software company, I think it's called Chainalysis, I'm not sure, but they're doing that to basically find people who aren't, you know, uh, paying their taxes, for example. Um, so if, it, if it's already being done today, it's only going to get easier and easier um, for people to track and figure out which addresses are linked with which, you know, persons. And, and I think IP addresses, you know, time zones, there's all kinds of little pieces of metadata that are left behind that we don't think about. Um, but for the right adversary, those can be pieced together. Right. And just to be crystal clear, we're not advocating in any way that you should be using privacy to obfuscate your spending patterns to avoid taxes. Because, you know, one of the unfortunate things about cryptocurrency is it's being classified by the IRS more or less as property. So any kind of transaction is effectively taxable for now. And everybody should take that into account and they should, you know, document and report and pay those taxes. Um, but it is, as you say, it's interesting to note that the IRS, an entity like that, is is using those those forms of analysis, which almost certainly means that somebody more sinister uh, could be doing that same analysis to try to reveal who's who in the Bitcoin blockchain. And it's only going to get the technology easier and cheaper for people to use over time. So I think it's only a matter of time until someone like you or I could do that. Sure. Yeah. So Max, what's wrong with cash? When I have a $100 bill, it's fungible in the sense that I can't get arrested because my $100 bill happened to be used by a drug dealer three days ago. Yeah, that's a really, really good question, actually. And to some degree, you could argue that cash, like physical cash as we um, have today, um, could potentially meet those requirements that I was talking about. Um, the So it's obviously, um, it's certainly more or less fungible. I mean, it does have like individual identifiers in the bills, but you can't trace the history of transactions. So it's, it's for all intents and purposes, it's fungible. Um, you obviously, I guess, to some degree could do it, it could use it digitally, although that starts to rely on a third party. What I would argue though, is that even in printed cash, it's not um, decentralized. And the reality is today, um, if you, whatever currency you use anywhere in the world, for example, if you're traveling to a place like Venezuela, which is experiencing extreme hyperinflation right now, it's certainly not uh, decentralized um, because the government can, you know, print, you know, either virtually or physically whatever quantity of that money they want, which devalues the value of your currency. So I would argue that any currency that that um, you know uh, 
is 100% dependent on a single entity to create it, like a central bank, for example, um, is itself not uh, decentralized. And so therefore doesn't meet the store value um, condition, which you know, people famously talk about for, uh, for monies and currencies. Yeah, well, that's, that's an important, important point, Max. And I think you've really done a good job of laying out these three characteristics, digital, fungible, and decentralized. I think decentralized is probably going to require its own separate podcast because that's a pretty controversial and fraught conversation about you know, what are the benefits versus the risks of having an entity like the U.S. Federal Reserve have exclusive right to print currency, right? Totally. Let's all agree to assume for now that it is better to have a decentralized monetary supply than a centralized monetary supply, and we will dig in in much greater depth in a future episode as to as to why we believe that. But I think probably everybody can be on board with the idea that for some kinds of transactions, fungibility is key. And, and, and one other point that I just want to add there, Eli, is even if you know that that's not super you know important to you, um, the reality is cash is disappearing from the world. So even if you do like cash, even if you do think that you know meets enough of the requirements that we're talking about to be you know, or even if you really only care about fungibility, let's say, um, there's you know been a lot of uh, sort of news over the last year or so. Um, India was, I guess, sort of the forefront of this, where they're famously recalling their largest denominations of printed currency. Um, and the idea is that this is going to be a trend we see happening over the next ten to twenty years, where governments are trying to turn everything digital, so it's easier um, to trace. On the other hand, it's obviously there's benefits as well, right? It can give you um, much sort of easier access to purchasing things much faster. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's a balance of, of uh, losing privacy versus getting sort of ease in your life. Um, but regardless, whether that's good or bad, the reality is cash is becoming uh, rarer and rarer as time goes on. And, and as, as people rely more and more on credit cards, what they have to remember is that, you know, sure, you're getting these points as rewards, but you're also having your anonymous data monetized and they're selling all that data. And so they're able to kind of track spending habits and they probably make all of those rewards back by selling that data to other corporations who can then strategically market. Definitely. I would love to maybe jump into what are, assuming you do want you know, a fungible, digital, decentralized currency, what are your options today? So let's start with uh, Bitcoin mixers. Bitcoin mixers are third-party services that allow you to basically, let's say you, like, if I wanted to pay Eli you know, one Bitcoin, because um, I'm in a really generous mood today and you know, I thought you did a great job editing. He did a great job editing last week's podcast. Um, but for whatever reason, I don't want people to know that I'm paying Eli that Bitcoin. There are services where you can take your Bitcoin, um, pay someone, uh, a third party, a small fee. They'll mix them with other UTXOs, other um, unspent transaction outputs, um, and then make sure Eli gets paid his full Bitcoin. But the Bitcoin he actually receives is a mixture of Bitcoin from you and other random parties. Um, this is, in, in theory, I guess, an interesting idea. and in practice, is not so great for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that you know, at a high level, anytime you're adding privacy as like a, an upper layer, um, there's always ways to undo it. Um, at a more sort of direct and I guess sort of the, the implication of that is if you're using one of these mixers today, the reality is it's a huge red flag. Um, the people that do, because there's not a lot of people using these mixers, the ones that do tend to have a reason to do so, um, which means there's a higher chance of using these mixers that you're going to get tagged for some illicit or criminal behavior that you're not even engaging in. Bitcoin mixers, interesting technology, um, honestly, probably not worth the hassle and probably create more red flags for you as an innocent bystander um, than, uh, you know, just sending normal Bitcoin. Yeah. And again, one of the huge risks there is because Bitcoin is not fully fungible, there might be reason to prosecute you. If even if you weren't doing anything illicit, if they could trace back the Bitcoin that you obtained and they could prove that that particular coin, that that chunk of Bitcoin, that UTXO 
was used for an illicit purpose, a government in the future could decide that that in and of itself, that's tainted money that has to be expunged from the system. Yeah. Uh, and, and that could be, they, they could basically bar you from using that UTXO in future transactions, which effectively wipes out the value of your money. And I think that's a great example, right? Because you, you could think of an example where you uh, you want to you know mix your money for completely legal, non-nefarious reasons. A second option that exists today uh, that's pretty well publicized is called Dash. This was started as a cryptocurrency called Dark Cash um, several years ago. Um, and Dash has a non-requisite, um, so that means it's an optional feature for privacy. So you can, most of the transactions that happen on the Dash network are open, transparent, um, but you have the option to do some um, privately. The issue with Dash, um, there's a couple. One, and I think this is really important when you're evaluating any cryptocurrency out there is, you know, what is the community like? And in the early days of Dash, um, there were some sort of controversial things that happened. There was an instamine where the founder ended up with a very large amount of the currency and, you know, claimed to be accidental. I have no idea if it was or wasn't, but, you know, I'm always skeptical. This is like sort of a personal bias of any currency that, um, you know, has an organization or a company or an individual behind it. Um, that is, you know, uh, that is benefiting in a sort of non-transparent way. Um, so that's just kind of a personal bias. I think the the bigger concern is that if you do use Dash and their mixing function and their privacy function, it basically has a, a built-in mixer. So kind of like we just talked about Bitcoin mixers, that's all done on the chain, on the blockchain. The issue with Dash is that that mixing is done by what's called um, super nodes or master nodes rather. And these master nodes are a limited group of people that have you know a large amount of Dash, a large amount invested in the system. And the problem is they, in theory, can see the inputs and outputs of a mixing transaction. Um, and even if they find some way to hide it, and the way that Dash tries to hide it is by chaining several master nodes together. So you basically mix it through several different ones. They can't know they can't know um, the inputs and outputs of, of every other master node. Um, if there is a powerful third party, like a corporation, let's say they're running it, I don't know, on Amazon Web Services or something, um, they can potentially use the same mechanisms we talked about with Bitcoin, IP addresses, time of use, et cetera, to take the, the information from several different master nodes, link them together um, to trace identity. Um, so for me, that's kind of like the, sort of the, the kiss of death for Dash's um, privacy. So I, I wouldn't really trust that. The next option is Zcash. Um, Zcash is extremely interesting. It uses a new technology called ZK Snarks, um, which is honestly fascinating. I think Zcash has the potential to be the most revolutionary privacy coin, um, but it also has some issues. So Zcash using ZK Snarks, basically um, it uses some really complicated cryptography, which I don't full, fully understand. I've read about this stuff for a long time. Um, but the idea is that instead of like Bitcoin, um, where you can prove uh, that I as a sender sent a specific quantity, a specific amount of Bitcoin to you, um, using ZK Snarks, if you're using it in its shielded or private mode, you never prove anyone sent a specific amount to anyone else. All you prove is that it's a, it's a type of a zero knowledge proof is you basically say, hey, um, I sent a specific amount. I'm not telling you what that amount is and I'm not telling you where I sent it or you know, even who it was sent from, but there is a number, uh, a secret that I need to prove that I have access to. I don't need to tell you what that secret is, but that I have access to, to say, look, point A sent a quantity to point B um, and without knowing who is A, who is B or what that quantity is, you know it was done correctly. Um, so again, very complicated, and that could be its own subject is talking about Zcash. But what I would say is um, the danger with this is twofold. 
threefold. One, again, on sort of the organizational level, um, Zcash has, you know, a, a sort of company behind it that, you know, raise money from investors. So I'm always just a little skeptical of those, of those communities. Number two, it is optional, not um, uh, by default privacy, which means that the vast majority of transactions on the Zcash network, which is a Bitcoin fork, by the way, are just, just like Bitcoin. They're open um, and public. So I think it's something like 1% of the transactions on that blockchain are actually shielding all of the information, which means it's a relatively small set of users that are doing so. Um, it means it's not fungible because you can, if you're, if you're using in private mode, it's like, you know, giant, hey, look at me, red flag. Right. Um, but the, the biggest concern with Zcash is how it was started. So because of the way ZK Snarks work, um, this kind of weird cryptography that I was talking about, in the past you could do it, um, but you, you could do it with several math messages back and forth between the prover and, and the person trying to trying to prove, uh, or so, sorry, the, the person that's trying to verify that you've created the transaction, the one that sent it. Um, and that took a ton of data. It took tons of messaging back and forth. And they're sort of, in my understanding, they're sort of breakthroughs. They said, hey, we can do this same confirmation in only one message. But the sort of Faustian bargain they made to do that was that they required a, uh, a private setup ceremony for Zcash where anyone who was colluding in that initial setup ceremony has a secret key that could be used to print an indefinite amount of Zcash. So it's really fascinating. The technology is super cool. Um, but for the reasons of not being anonymous or sorry, not being uh, uh, required anonymity, the private uh, setup ceremony, which requires human trust and sort of the general um, funding structure for Zcash, I think it's interesting, but not something that I would, um, you know, recommend at this stage of its development. That could change in the future. Right. Well, I think what you've what you've identified there is that to go back to our three criteria framework for ideal cash: digital, decentralized, and fungible. Zcash is decidedly not decentralized because, in theory, a small group of people have the centralized ability to print indefinite Zcash exactly. tokens. And I'm not saying they do. I mean, I, I've only read positive things about this community. But the fact that you have to rely on that, I mean, right. you know, human trust should not be required for mathematical, um, you know, belief in a system. Absolutely. Cool. And then I'm going to throw just one more sort of out there. Um, and this one I understand the least, but excites me the most before the, the, the currency we'll discuss next week. And that is a currency called Grin, which is an implementation of the Mimblewimble protocol. And I, I feel almost kind of ridiculous saying Mimblewimble, which is taken from Harry Potter. It's like a... Remember, we're talking cryptos, so we're talking with nerds, which, you know, is fun. These are mostly my people, so that's cool. But um, Mimblewimble is a spell in Harry Potter that um, I think it prevents you from, from talking. It makes you, you know, uh, I guess mute to a degree. So you can see that the, the privacy right. action. But basically, Grin um, is an implementation. It hasn't even been rolled out yet. It's still on a test net, which means it's under development. Um, but in theory, it uses some cryptography I have really, really limited understanding of. But it allows you to keep track of the entire blockchain without actually keeping track of the blockchain. Um, and so there's actually no uh, addresses at all. Um, transactions are sent from wallet to wallet. Uh, I think now it's over IP address. And there's no record kept of any amount. Um, so in theory, it's really cutting edge technology. It's private and it's highly scalable because you don't have to store a lot of data. I think we should do, we should definitely do in the future our own show just on Grin. Um, but I, right. I mean, when you describe it, it sounds like total magical thinking. It's exactly. Like, we took a cryptocurrency, but we took out the amounts. We took out the addresses. We took out everything. It's like you've reduced it to like nothing. So like, what's actually there? So that 
that does sound fascinating from a crypt cryptography perspective. Exactly. Um, and a, te a technology perspective. I'd love to learn yeah. more. So, so we'll do a future show on that. Honestly, it's the one um, other than what we'll talk about next week, which I think is the best cryptocurrency that excites me the most. But it's just so it's so young and so nascent right now. I, I don't really have much more to say because you know we'll see. The proof is in the pudding, right? We'll see what happens. Totally. Yeah. So I think what Max is alluding to is that through our research, I think we both kind of settled on a private anonymous token, a cryptocurrency that accomplishes the goals we've been describing in this show the best. And, you know, that could change. It's not like, uh, you know, one, one thing that's exciting about this space, this space is that new technologies, new implementations are constantly arising. Um, but that's uh, the currency we're talking about is Monero. So I think uh, to kind of do Monero justice and to really explain how it works and explain you know why we think it's one of the best options out there for anonymous transactions. We've got to defer that for another uh, another another episode. Agreed, and I, th I think you guys are going to be fascinated. This this to me this cryptocurrency like I've only had two extremely aha exciting moments when studying crypto. The first is when I first you know read about Bitcoin, um, and the second was Monero. So I, I think you guys are going to be uh, really interested in this. Great. Well, thanks so much, Max. This has been really fun. And uh, again, as Max mentioned uh, at the beginning of the episode, if you have any feedback or questions, things you want us to delve deeper on, things you didn't like, things you did like, if you want to know our Monero addresses so you can send us uh, a little token of your appreciation, <laughs> just kidding, like please <laughs> reach out to us at cryptonomads at protonmail.com. Sweet. Until next time, hasta luego. Hasta luego, amigo.